Today's episode is sponsored by Nut Hunt, a game of territorial squirrels, which is currently on Kickstarter. Hassle the fox, forage for nuts, and recruit squirrels in Nut Hunt, the fast-paced squirrel placement game. A perfect game for families or to welcome new players to your group. Nut Hunt is fun, packed full of incredible artwork, and approachable while retaining enough strategic depth to keep even serious gamers occupied. So can you outsmart the fox and your competition in Nut Hunt? Check it out on Kickstarter right now. If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about game design. We're talking about board game design. And you might think, well, that sounds pretty vague. That sounds pretty <laughs> generic in general. And that sounds like the most... Seems off topic for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely is the, like the vaguest topic I've ever done for a show. You know, Usually we focus on one specific topic, we dive in. But for this episode, this very special episode with a very good friend of mine, Mr. Peter C. Hayward. Peter, welcome back to the show. G'day. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And for this episode, I really just wanted to get your thoughts, your advice, your best tips and tricks for all of game design. And so we are going to get a little more specific. We're going to kind of break it up into two halves. We'll talk about beginners and if you're just getting started and what does that look like? And then also once you've been doing this a while, kind of the advanced tips and tricks, so to speak. And so, yeah, man, I'm, I love having you on the show. Honestly, I was just like trying to figure out what's a good thing we could talk about <laughs> and just to get you back. And I was like, well, let's just talk about game design and see where it goes. And uh, my notes for this are intro, beginners, advanced. That's all I've written down. And so... <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I've, I've, I've got notes for this one uh, for once. <laughs> and so we're just going to see where this conversation goes, man. Again, really excited to have you back. Uh, Jellybean Entertainment is a company that you've been running for quite some time. You've got a lot of experience designing games, publishing games. You've been doing a lot of cool things. Uh, are you still in Los Angeles right now? I am in Hollywood right now. Yeah, very cool, man. And so let's uh, I tell you what, give people maybe just a quick recap of what you've been doing since the last time you were on the show, which was not too long ago, but give people a quick a recap, and then we'll dive in. Yeah, so the biggest thing since I was last on is that I had, unusually for me, a game release through another company. So I'm, I'm sort of a Ryan Lockhart or Tim Fowers type where I, I published a lot of my own stuff. Um, this one wasn't didn't make any sense for our brand, so I approached another publisher, Pandasaurus, and they signed it. And so That Time You Killed Me is my two-player campaign abstract that came out uh, right at the end of last year, and that's been, that's been doing quite well. They're about to put a whole bunch more units on a boat, so I'm very excited for more copies of that to be out in the wild, because right now you cannot get it anywhere, which is a nice thing for a, a nice problem for a designer to have. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good problem to have. Um, and the good news is, you know, shipping is cheap right now, so it's going to be great. 
Yeah, no, no, no problem whatsoever. Um, when you reached out for this, I 100% assumed that you're doing a series where you're asking like a bunch of different designers, you know, what are their game design tips? And I was like, I am flattered to be part of this series. Uh, so to discover that I am the series is even more flattering. <laughs> you are you are the trilogy, sir. You know, and I wrote a book about this a few years ago where I did interview a lot of different, like 100 something designers and chatted about various. It's, it's on uh, my shelf right now. Oh, awesome. And uh, you were a contributor. I really appreciate that. Yeah. But for this one, it was literally, I want Peter back on the show. I want to chat. I want to hang out with him and let's schedule it and let's make it content. And so that's kind of, kind of where we're at. <laughs> so again, really appreciate, <laughs> appreciate you being here, but uh, let's, let's jump in, man. Give me, give me yeah. number one. I know you've got like top five lists and stuff like that. And so let's go backwards or forwards or where, you know, wherever you want to start. Well, I'm going to start with, uh, so I asked if I could split it to beginners and advanced. And then I realized there is one thing that applies to everyone, beginners, advanced, everyone. And it's so broadly applicable that we actually did a whole episode on it, which is uh, unguided playtesting or cold playtesting. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, definitely go back and find the episode that we did about uh, cold playtesting, uh, which we now call unguided playtesting. It's always changing its name apparently, um, because that is my number one tip to any designer of any level that that changes your game for the better every single time you do it. I just, yesterday I had a whole day of unguided playtesting. I just printed out a bunch of rules, put them in front of people, watched them learn the games, suffered. It's the most miserable part of game design, but both of those games really like immediately jumped up a whole notch just from that process. Yeah, you are what you put on tape. It's something we used to say <laughs> when I was playing football and like the tape doesn't lie and the unguided playtest doesn't lie. You know, when you yeah. hand somebody a box and a rule book and you say, hey, figure it out and I'm just going to sit here and watch. Oh, it's painful. Just like watching, you know, Monday morning or Sunday afternoon, whenever your your practice after the game is, you're watching the tape. You're like, was I that bad? You know, like it felt okay. <laughs> Did I you know, think in this the moment, made sense at the time? Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow, I was way off. Like that shot, that tackle, whatever. It's like, oh, that's kind of gross. <laughs> and then the worst part is, you know, that everybody else has the same tape. At least that's one good thing yeah. about unguided playtesting. It's just you in the room. You're the only one there, and exactly. the people who are making suffer. <laughs> exactly. But like when I was playing football, man, you're like, oh, this was on national television. Oh, good. This <laughs> this is on highlight reels for other people. I'm on somebody else's highlight where they ran me over. Cool. I'm on somebody else's this, poster. That's fun. This is the one advantage of, of board games not being as popular as sports. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. So, All right, so, the, yeah. uh, so like I said, I split it up into beginners and advanced. My first tip for beginners is to make a lot of games. One thing I see beginners do all the time is they have this one game that they've worked on. They've, you know, they came up with it. They were like, I want to be a game designer and I want to make this one game. And they have spent five years toiling on this game and they've never even thought of making another game. I can tell you, even if your goal is just to make that one game as good as you can, making other games will get you to that goal. But more likely, if you want a game design, it's probably because you're a game designer. You're not a game designer. You're a games designer. So make a bunch of games. Really don't don't fall in love with one idea and be like, I'm never going to make anything else. Don't bring the same game to the table for two years straight. Make a bunch of stuff and you will find that they all, they build on each other and they make the other ones better. Oh, absolutely. And this is also a great way to generate new ideas. You know, if you're a writer, sitting down and writing every day is not about just creating more content or getting your book further along or, or whatever. It's also just about generating more ideas because the more you write, the more ideas you get and the better you get at it, obviously, the more you do something, hopefully, the better you get. But yeah. I feel like in my own personal experience, just designing more games has helped me come up with other game ideas. You know, right. you have something that doesn't work or maybe it's too big and you need to cut it out and you cut out a mechanism. And you're like, oh, I'm going to put that back in the file because that's not that's a good idea. I'm going to come back around to it one day. And so I think that's another thing. It it It's almost like a, a perpetual motion machine. Uh, uh, Self-perpetuating, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good one. Uh, and then sort of alongside that one is 
look for a fun core loop. So uh, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this before and, and um, all, your, all your other designers have talked about this before, getting like the simplest prototype you can on the table. Because what you were looking for there is you don't want to bring out, you know, a game that you spent 25 hours on without anyone playing it. You want the most basic game you can, because if you can find a fun core loop, so just the, the simple action that you're doing each turn is inherently fun or engaging, that's when you've got something. Like if you if you can find a fun core loop, you can build whatever game you like around that. If you start with a completely build game, then you're sort of mining. <laughs> you have to like dig through all the cruft that you've added to see if the if the idea itself is fun. Yeah, that's something I learned a few years ago because I used to design and then prototype, create the whole thing. Let's put oh. together the whole game. And the bigger the game, the bigger the the time investment and prototyping yeah. components, all that kind of stuff. And then like you said, you get finally you finally get to a play test and you're like oh this sucks but which part sucks <laughs> is it this over here or that over there like it's kind of hard to or just as bad oh there is something fun here but what, <laughs> what <is laughs> which it? part of this is fun and trying to find that yeah uh, absolutely so my, my second point is going to directly contradict that one which is try to finish a game mm. and i don't mean make one game for six years until it's finished i mean if you if you have a fun idea, you know, work on it for a few months and and try to finish it because there, there's a there's a thing that I learned in creativity, which is that finishing is addictive. Finishing a creative work is addictive. Once you can put a bow on something and be like, oh, that's complete. I've put it out in the world in some form. It fills you with this energy, and you want to make another thing. You want to start another thing. Whereas if you have twenty seven unfinished projects, then that's that's daunting. You don't feel energized. You feel overwhelmed. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's also about momentum. You know, and finishing gives you a little bit more momentum and then you can kind of go into the next thing. But I want to relate the last two points you just made because something I do in my own designs is I break down a game into smaller chunks and then I finish that small chunk before I move on and try to add it to another chunk of the game. And so, for instance, I might only work on the combat system for a while. And that's what I did with Robomon. It's like, okay, co- combat is this kind of separate thing over here and it kind of mixes with other stuff. Let me do that. Let me get it good and fun and interesting. And then let me worry about the story part. And then let me worry about the skill check system and the movement system. And then you kind of slowly craft these different systems and eventually put them together and make sure they mesh well together and all that. But the momentum you get from finishing one part, you just take right into the next part, right? Or in yeah. bigger picture, into the next game and into the next project. And so it is addicting, right? You, you get that warm you know, dopamine rush, that warm fuzzy yeah. feeling. It's like, oh, let's keep, keep doing that. And you prove to yourself that you can do it, right? You're like, yeah. I can, I can actually finish a game. And then you know. and finishing a game could take any number of forms. Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before. My first game that I ever finished was Dracula's Feast. And this is, this was years before I had a company years before I put it on Kickstarter and I put it online as a free print play. I don't know if anyone ever downloaded it and tried it, anyone, but I, I, fin- I got it to the point where I was like, I am happy with this. I finished it. I put it out there. Even though no one played at that point, I was like, Oh, I can do this. I can finish a game. Uh, roll and rights or, or print and play roll and write. So I have a, I have a print and play roll and write uh, coming out in the middle of June, coming to Kickstarter. Um, essentially, if you listen to this, it's free right now online. You can go to coffeebean.games, look, look for Sunshine City, and you can download a free version of this roll and write. It's it's very fun. Definitely check it out. And we're bringing a a kind of more a, uh, advanced version to Kickstarter halfway through June. But roll and writes it, it, it taught me that like a single sheet of paper can be a completed game. Like if, if you want if you want to make a bunch of games and finish them, try working on a single sheet rolling right because there is there is a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility and you can put that out online for free and people can try it. They can print it at home and, and play it themselves. Oh yeah, and this is kind of that lowest common denominator. Yeah, it's it's one of the most successful types of design. 
Right. And so many designers, myself included, they come into the space, they have an idea, and it's like a two-hour middle to heavyweight experience, right? Yeah. It's a massive game. It's probably beyond their pay grade. It's beyond their skill <laughs> level, their skill set at the time. Which which is, I love the aspiration, but like you, you it, there's, a, there's a term, I do a lot of improv, like uh, improvised comedy. And there's, there's a phrase from improv that I've always really liked. If you can't do a one minute scene, you can't do a two hour scene. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't finish a single page roll and write, you can't finish your two hour masterpiece. <laughs> exactly. And more than likely, you're going to try and fail pretty substantially and then get so overwhelmed or disappointed or frustrated or whatever that maybe you don't even keep going, right? I've, I've seen right. a lot of people in creative spaces, they start off with something bigger than what they probably should, which makes sense because they probably yeah. just read or just played or just watched something amazing, this awesome thing. They're like, oh, I want to do that. And then they try to do that. And they didn't see you know, 25 years of somebody working to be able to do that. They just yeah. saw the finished product, right? And so that's always, you're comparing your rough draft to somebody else's final yeah you know, edit and we don't see all the other stuff. And so just to kind of take a step back, be a little humble and go, let me start off right. with an 18 card game, 18 card game or an, a fan expansion. A fan expansion oh, is yeah. an amazing way to cut your teeth. If you, if you can come up with a fun expansion for Catan or ruins of Arnak, whatever your favorite game is like, that's a way to make a small project. You don't have to build. It's like fan fiction. You don't have to build a whole world and characters from scratch. You can learn skills by playing with other people's tools Put it on BGG and so- someone will try it. Like, you, you know, that's a great way of, of, of making something and finishing it. Yeah. Uh, my next one is play test fast, play test often. So I already touched on play test fast, which is, you know, get your game to the table as quickly as you can. I learned pretty early in my design career that I work much better with any kind of deadline. doesn't matter what the deadline is. So I set up a weekly play test group. Every Wednesday night, a bunch of my friends would come down to the bar. I would buy them, you know, snacks and chips and, and drinks and they would play whatever I had. And so with people coming there and me, you know, putting, like, if, if you can't afford that, great. Say, so buy your own drinks, but still come and play every week. People coming there every week for me, I had to have something every Wednesday. And so sometimes I'd bring the same game, but I, I would generally, like, you know, if people coming out, I'd want to play two or three things. So that I was constantly generating new stuff. When I moved to Toronto, I did the same thing. I had a weekly playtest group. For the first six months, no one came. But every week I was ready for a playtest, even if it never happened, with new material, new games. And once you have that game, even if no one comes, you will find a way to get to the table. Even if you're like, hey, mom, no one came. Can you come around and play this game? Sure, great. At least at least you're bringing it to the table in some way. Yeah, I definitely agree. And this is also something I, I learned with the podcast. And it was, and it's something I'm kind of learning also as I try to do some other content creation stuff here soon. Um, it's do it for a while, then reassess. Because it's really easy to do it once or twice or a few times and then immediately go, oh, nobody cares, nobody's showing up, nobody's listening, nobody's watching, nobody's playing my game, whatever. And if you had just given it six months, maybe it would have taken off. Maybe it would have blown yeah. up, you know? And like when I first started the podcast, I got way more than I thought I would. I thought I'd get like 10 or 15 listeners. I got about 100. I was like, oh, shoot, you, this is... You launched for the Jamie Stegmeyer interview, so that probably helped. <laughs> <laughs> Did not hurt in hindsight. Uh, but I, I never thought it would be some big thing, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this for a while. I didn't create like a specific timeline. If I was going to go back and do it, I'd be like, I'm going to do it for six months. I'm going to do this six months, which would be, oh, I don't even know how many episodes, but that'd be about 25, roughly 25, 28 yeah. episodes, something like that. And then I'm going to reassess and I'm going to decide, is this worth the time, effort, money, all that kind of stuff? Let me figure it out and then decide one way or the other. But I would give it six months and not even look at a metric, not look at a number, not worried about yeah. it, not caring too much about it. Because a lot of times our feelings get wrapped up in nobody showed up at the playtest. Nobody bought 
the first game. Nobody listened to the first two or three episodes of the podcast. And if you just give it time and let it cook and build up some listeners and audience and players. I just retweeted something yesterday. Um, it said, churning butter is my favorite metaphor because when you're churning butter, you're doing the same thing over and over and you see no results for like yeah. 20 minutes or half an hour, whatever it is. And then suddenly out of nowhere, there's butter. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's it's not the gradual build of like, you know, filling up a bucket of water where you can see the level rising. It is nothing and nothing and nothing. And then suddenly, bam, you have butter. And so it's, it's exactly that. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link to this so you can put it in the show notes. There's a great YouTube video about starting a YouTube career, but it, it's, it's about starting any creative career. And he splits it into like these three separate chunks, which is like get started, get good, get smart. I think it's something mm-hmm. like that. And so get started. He's like, just spend three months making anything. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad, just make it and see if you enjoy the process. Cause if you enjoy the process, it doesn't matter if it's bad. You do it. You do anything long enough. You'll get good at it. There is, there is nothing where if you don't put time into it, you will eventually get at least better than when you started. I guess being young would be the exception to that. <laughs> uh, but if, if you start making YouTube videos once a week or once a month or whatever your schedule allows, even if they're terrible, and they will be, everything you start with is terrible. If you like doing it, that's all you need as an incentive to keep on doing it. And then, and then, yeah, he, he goes on. It's a really good video. I'll, I'll send you a link. But yeah, get get smart is, is get good is when you're like, okay, I enjoy this. How can I get better at it? And get smart is okay. I've gotten good at it. How can I maximize my time and my opportunities? Yeah, I love that. And it also kind of follows with something I've talked to, talked about on the show in the past. And it's create a system. Don't just create goals, right? Create a system that makes success inevitable as opposed to just creating goals where you're like trying to work and work and work and accomplish. You know, it's if you're yeah. going to lose weight or get healthy or something like that, you don't want to just say, I want to lose 20 pounds because then what happens? You lose 20 pounds and now what? Like so many people just gain all the weight back. They go right back into being unhealthy. You know, they got really good and they ran a marathon and, and they were super in shape and then they didn't have anything else to, to do or shoot for and they just lost it all within a month. And yeah. so if you create a system that naturally creates the results that you want, then you don't even have to worry about goals, right? Success and those goals will get accomplished. An old football coach used to say, the scoreboard takes care of itself, right? Just do the do the stuff right. in practice. Do the little things. Do the things in the weight room and the film room and all that stuff. And then when you get on the field, the scoreboard will take care of itself. You will win games. Yeah. You will score points because you did all the other stuff. And so yeah. with game design, I think it's the same thing. Show up, if not daily, at least a handful of times a week. Show up to play tests. Go, go do all the things to create a system and then good games are going to come out of that eventually, I, I assume. This, this, I'm going to skip forward to my fifth point because this is pretty much it. Uh, the, the way I've phrased it is focus on process, not product. And this actually comes from a, uh, a parenting article I read once, which said like when, you, when, you're, when you're making stuff with your kids, when you're playing with Play-Doh or drawing whatever, don't, don't say, oh man, what a good piece of art you made because then they're like, oh, the important thing is the result. Instead, you know, focus on, are you having fun with this? Are you enjoying it? Oh, here's, here's, here's how we can do this differently. You know, oh, you know, here's a technique that you didn't know. If you focus on the product, then it's, it's, it's basically what you're saying. Like if you focus on the scoreboard, you're going to get in your head. Uh, If you focus on the process, then all feedback is good feedback. You know, if, if your goal is to make a great game, let's say I want to make a great game. Cool. Okay. Gabe, I'm going to show you my game. Now, anything you say that is negative about that game means that I'm failing. <laughs> if you say, oh, this is a little long, then I'm like, oh, so you're saying it's not a great game. So I'm not, a, I'm not doing what I did. Great. Well, I never want to play a game again. Whereas if I think I want to be the best game designer I can be, if that, if I'm focusing on process, not product, 
then A, you know, I'm going to make a lot of games because being the best game designer I can make, sorry, be the best, being the best game designer I can be means that focusing on one game is, that's, that's, not a, that's not a very efficient way of being a game designer. Like you want to make a bunch of stuff in the hope that something lands. And if I get feedback, if I show you a game, you're like, that's a little long. I'm like, oh, that's so useful. Okay, so now I have that information and I can use that to become a better game designer. And exactly like you were saying, if you focus on the process, not the product, the product gets better. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And it's really a, a mature, more mature way of approaching this, right? I feel like when you're new at something, you hear some criticism and you take it very personally, right? You're attacking me as opposed right. to going, thank you for helping me see my blind spot, for helping me grow, for helping me learn. Now, some people come in and they are jerks about it. And the way they say things is like completely unnecessary and rude. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I, I get that. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying focus on process, therefore let everyone bully you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But again, watching the tape, it is amazing to me yeah. how many people I've met who just don't want to watch tape. And I get it because it is painful. It is hard. Yeah. And I've, I've helped a lot of speakers and preachers over the years that want to get better. They want to become better storytellers and better on stage and stuff like that. And the first question I ask is, are you recording yourself? Are you going back and watching it and taking right. notes and things like that? 99% of the time, they say no for lots of different reasons. Well, I, I would suspect that one of the reasons is they're focusing on product. If they're thinking, I want to be a good player, watching that tape is a risk because that tape could show that they're not a good player. And so that actually goes against their goal. Whereas if, if, you know, if they're trying to improve, then watching the tape is a necessity. Absolutely. And I think that's a great word for it. It's a necessity. That's why playtesting is so vital. It's just so unbelievably vital to this process because it, it shows your game for what it is. Right. And then again, it's yeah. not, it doesn't show you for who you are exactly. Right. right? <laughs> uh, it, it just shows this thing that you're working on. Again, it's a work in progress as well. And, and maybe just realize that, but a necessity, I, I like that. And I, I think especially new designers, just having it in yeah. their, their minds, this is necessary, not part of the, whatever it's 100%. I have yeah. to, not, not it a want to, and I have to do it. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I love your process because I know you start off early, early, early play testing, you know, getting right to oh, immediately. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm following my own advice. I have so many play tests scheduled and I now have a little Facebook group of my friends who are like, Hey, we like your games. Can we play test stuff? So if I have an idea it is pretty feasible and I'm, I'm in a very privileged position, I'm not saying every, everyone is able to do this, but I can get a game to the table within half an hour of coming up with that idea. Um, maybe not at 3am, but a lot of the time. And so it means that I don't have time to form an attachment. <laughs> I don't have time to be like, oh, I'll build it this way. Then it has to be this and it has to be this. I can just get at the table and watch it crash and burn. Or like I said, I'm looking for that fun core loop. That's the only thing I care about that early stage. Uh, and some, you know, everyone has a different process. Some people design to theme, some people design to whatever. I'm now more and more just being like, okay, is this a fundamentally fun thing to do? Because if it is, I know I can build that into whatever I want it to be, but that, that core needs to be there. Yeah. What I love is that it gets it out of your head because I don't know about you, but every game I've ever designed that, you know, before it actually got out onto a, a table or as a prototype and playtesting, before then it was the best game ever made. Are they amazing? Yeah. It was going to sell more <laughs> copies than Monopoly. Like it was going to be number. I'm like, wh why aren't the publishers in here? Just <laughs> jump in here. You'll see how good this game is. Don't make me make it because it gets worse somehow Exactly <laughs> in the process. But if you just see it in here, it's amazing. 100% <laughs> of the time it has gotten yeah. way worse. <laughs> what, not even like, oh, well, it's not quite as good. No, no. It is so bad coming out of my head. And it's like, how? How is this so perfect in my head? And I even like, I'll sit there and think about it and play through the turns and go through the rounds and have the card structure yeah. and the, you know all this stuff. And then you make a prototype. You're like, what? What is this? This is not what I thought. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's so good and useful for new designers to hear that though from 
established designers and people who've been published and have their own companies, things like that. It's like that for everybody. Like every idea in your head is is gold, but then it never survives contact with the table. It just doesn't. And so you got to get it out. You got to get on on the page. You got to get it on the table and, and get that thing actually working. And then you'll find out what it really is. Yeah. And the good thing too about getting an idea out so quickly is that it actually gets better. Because <laughs> if it's just like a half-baked idea, then I pull it out, then it has room to improve. Whereas if you spend six years baking it, then you know it, it has nowhere to go but down. Yeah. And you also think about the opportunity cost. Like the more you've invested mentally in something, like the harder it is. I feel like the longer it's in there, the harder it is to get out because you kind of deep down know it's not going to be as good yeah. as you hope. And you've already put so much time into it that it's yeah. it's scary, man. And I, yeah. I'm, I can say that now, like working on Robomon, this is like over two years I've been working on this game. And it's even longer than that if you look at like the the ideas that went into it even before then. Yeah, the, 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 the phoenixes that burst into flames to create ashes that this game could be bought out of. Exactly. Because I, I started working on open world game many years ago, right when I first started game designing. And it was so much bigger than I could even hope to, to understand how yeah. to do. And my skill set was just nowhere near where it needed to be. I put it on a shelf. And then eventually, a lot of those ideas have come back in, in this new game. And the longer I work on it, the scarier, scarier it gets. Like, the more anxious I get. Because, like, I know, like, if I put out a game that I've worked on for, you know, eight months, it's like, okay, you know, that kind of, it sucks when people don't like your, your thing and, and, you know, reviewers maybe don't like it or, you know, didn't get very many backers on Kickstarter or whatever. But it was only eight months. Right. When you've got like two plus years into something, that feeling gets worse. You're like, well, that was a lot of time to have wasted, you know? And so I get it, man. Yeah. But like, to your point, you got to get it out there. And obviously I'm, I'm not just talking about playtesting or prototyping. I'm talking about like actually out into the world, but yeah. it gets tougher the longer you wait. So yeah, get it out there as soon as you can. R- write up the rules or make the pro- play t- prototype or whatever you can. Right, my last one, again, this is, this is not new advice, but I, I think it's so important is play a bunch of different games. And the reason is not just because this is your field and you should know what's out there. I specifically think play a bunch of different games to build up your toolbox because you, you know, game design. So I I have a game design podcast, a rival game design podcast, uh, (laughs) which is called Fun Problems. And it's called Fun Problems because I believe making a game, you know, a game is a fun problem for players to solve. And the process of making a game is solving a bunch of fun problems. So it's sort of a, a fractal name. And the more games you've played, the more tools you have to solve those problems. You'll run into a thing of like, ah, but how do I make it simultaneous? If you've played, you know, 50 simultaneous play games, then you can see, oh, okay, you know, uh, Sidereal Confluence did it this way. Village Pillage did it this way. You know, every game that has any kind of simultaneous play, you can see what they did to solve the problem. And frankly, it's probably going to be a pretty close problem. So Play as many games as you can. Expose yourself to a bunch of stuff, even stuff that's not for you. It's okay if you don't like it. I'm not saying make yourself miserable by spending, you know, an hour a week, a, a day a week playing Twilight Imperium that you hate. But if you've never played Twilight Imperium and you're a game designer, play it. Just play it once, just to see what it is and see how they did. You know, because that game stretches the tension for eight hours. And even if you're only making five minute games, I think there's value in seeing how they made that game stretch the tension for eight hours. Because if you can make five minute Twilight Imperium, that that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like if you're an engineer and you need to build a bridge, you probably want to see how other engineers have built bridges. And you want to know Pro- the problem, bridges yeah. <laughs> that, that fell, you know, that failed and, and fell into the ocean. You want, to, you want to know, well, why is that? And how did that happen? And what were the factors that led into that? And then let's go study some bridges that have been around for 100 plus years. And what is it about those bridges that makes them last that long, right? Like in all aspects of society. And, and even going like, I don't like this bridge, 
And I don't know why. If you see 20 bridges you don't like, you'll start to be like, oh, I don't like bridges that have really, you know, straight up and downy pieces. I'm, I'm a professional <laughs> engineer. I don't know if you can tell. Uh, but I do like the ones that have the curvy lines. Aha. And if you can identify your own taste, that's really valuable for making a game that you like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, taste is a good point. Taste also always comes before skill. Like you're going to know yes. what's good long before you can make what's good. And I think that's another thing, like the idea in your head always coming out because you can play a game and go, oh, this is really fun. You can read a book, you can watch a movie, whatever, and you go, oh, I like this a lot and have nowhere near the skill level, skill set to put right. it into your own, you know, do, to do it yourself. And I think that's so valuable for new designers, new creative people to, to realize you're going to know what's good and you're not going to be able to create it. Like you can, right. you can look at art. Like I am awful at drawing and, and painting and stuff like that. I can go to a museum and go, wow, I love that. That is amazing. And I can go home and not be able to draw a stick figure, right? Because I haven't put in the time, the effort, the energy to actually get any good at it. And so I think knowing that to your core, <laughs> like not just knowing it in your head, but like knowing it to your core that you're, it just takes time. And then going back to your, uh, your tip earlier, create a process that you can go yeah. from your little stick figures to something closer to the, the, the things that you really love and, and, you know, your taste. And then as, as a side benefit, you'll probably find stuff that you like that you didn't expect to like. Mm. You'll probably find some game where, you know, on paper, you'd never have checked it out. But once you played it, you're like, oh, yeah. maybe I really like whatever it is. Take that games. I always thought I didn't because I'd only played the bad take that games that we played as kids. But a good take that game, I actually love. I have a great time. And so, yeah, there's so many reasons to play a bunch of games. It's obviously time consuming. But with stuff like uh, Board Game Arena and Tabletop Simulator and free print and plays and, and all the stuff that's out there nowadays, there's fewer and fewer barriers. So um, I don't know if you know this, but every Jelly Bean game, you can go on a website, print it for free right now. You can play every game that we ever made. Also, they're all on Tabletop Simulator. Every game we've made, you can play if you're in Tabletop Simulator, which, uh, you know, there is a barrier to entry there, I understand. But if, if, you, if you've got access to a printer or Tabletop Simulator, you can play any of our games. So there are fewer barriers than you'd think to playing a lot of games that are out there. Yeah. Also, if you really want to be a game designer, there's no excuse either way. You know what I mean? Like don't, don't let a barrier be an excuse and then also pretend like you really want to do this for real. You know what right. I mean? Like when I was in yeah. college, um, I would meet so many people that were big football fans. They want to be, they wanted to be on the team, but they didn't show up to a tryout. They didn't you know, <laughs> wake up at 5am and go work out and, and yeah. run and like do all the things. They didn't do any of the things that were necessary to actually make that happen. And so it was all yeah. talk. You know what I mean? And so I feel like there's a big difference between wanting and it, you know, actually being something you're going to do, you know, and I don't know where that line is. I think it's a little bit different for everybody, but you got to figure out, okay, if I'm serious about this, then I can't just keep saying it. I can't just keep talking about yeah. it. I've got to actually take some steps and do it. And in our case, playing games. If, if, if you, if you are able to listen to this podcast, <laughs> you are able to play games and design games for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And what a great barrier to entry is you're not having to wake up at 5 a.m. You're not having to like pick up 500 pounds. Like you're not having a coach yell at you or anything. It's literally, I'm going to go find a board game and, uh, and have some fun. So yeah, you, you don't <laughs> have to be 20 something years old or 18 years old or whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. I, my last one, I'm, I, I was unsure about putting this on. So I'm, I'm going to say it and Gabe, you can cut this. If, if you're like, no, Peter, don't, don't, don't tell people this uh, because I think it's inherently unhelpful advice. And I know this because I heard it and I ignored it when I was a new game designer, hmm. which is calm down about getting your game signed and published. Yeah. 
And I realized that coming from someone who's had Game Designer published, that sounds like, oh, sure, it's easy for you to say, because I can tell you, Eric Lang gave me this advice. And I said to him, oh, sure, that's easy for you to say, you're Eric Lang. But then once I had a bad signing experience, I completely got where he was coming from. So there's a few reasons not to stress about this. One is that I, I think I think it causes a lot of the problems with the early ones where you focus on one game because you're like, if you want to get a game signed, if that's your goal, then you have to have one game that's ready to be signed. So you're, you don't want to waste time on other games. You want to work on this one game for years and years and years until it's ready to be signed. There have been very few examples that I can think of where a game has been like obsessively worked on for years and then signed. And there are some, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but in terms of being a successful designer, the designers that I see getting games signed are the ones that have a new idea every week and then they take the best of those ideas and they polish those. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that if if you are desperate to get signed, A, it's not a good look. <laughs> it, it kind of, you can, you can smell it on someone. And B, you are more likely to get exploited and then do something that you regret. You will sign with a publisher who doesn't have your best interest at heart. You will sign a contract that is not as favorable to you as it should be. And at the time, I've had people say to me, oh, but I don't care. I would pay money to get my game published and have people enjoy it. Great. Like, I I get where you're coming from. I understand that desire. But once you're on the other side of it, you have to trust me. It does not, you, you don't feel that way anymore. You're like, oh, I really wish I had held out for a better publisher, someone who's work I respect more. I really wish I had held out for a contract that gave me the rights back instead of letting it sit with them for five years and then giving it back after five years. Like there are so many things that can go against the designer when signing a game. And if you if you are desperate to get signed, which a lot of people are, and I get it, I was the exact same way, then you open yourself up to being in a bad spot and you're less likely to make better games. Yeah, I think this also definitely extends to how many people want to run a Kickstarter even though they don't know anything about business, they don't know, they don't understand the manufacturing side, the shipping, the freight. They they don't have the information to really make yeah. that decision honestly. But they're like, I've got to get this game out in the, into the world. And maybe they tried to get it published, and, and people didn't pick it up, which might be a good indicator of some things. Like right. I'm not saying it's not a good game. I'm just saying maybe. I I, I often say if absolutely no, if if you pitch this game to twenty publishers and no one expresses interest, please don't kickstart it yourself. Like. They're, they're not out to get you. They're not They're not doing it to, to shove you down. They're doing it because they know what kind of things people will buy. And hey, maybe, maybe some of those publishers don't know what they're talking about. But if you if you show the game to you know double-digit publishers and no one's interested, don't kickstart it yourself. There are very good reasons to kickstart a game if you want to run a business, if you want to get that experience, if you want to do this thing. But it, if, if it's to get this one game into the world, start with publishers. And if no one wants to publish it, there is probably a reason for that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of this honestly comes from something much, much deeper, which is so many people feel like they're not actually the thing unless they have some kind of certified bona fide way of proving it. Right. If I don't have a game on a, if there's not a game on a shelf, if there's not one of my games with my name on it in a game store somewhere, if there's not a Kickstarter campaign that's successfully funded with my name on it, then I'm not truly quote unquote, a game designer. And that is so right. much BS. That is absolutely just a lie that our, our stupid caveman brain tells us sometimes uh, just to make us feel less than. And because it's not true. If you are, again, in the process of designing games, if you're in the process of writing a book, of, of creating a movie, whatever, you are the thing. You don't need yeah. someone to tell you. You don't need a piece of paper with you know a certification name, whatever. Like this is not 
plumbing or electrical work or HVAC or nursing or something like that, where you really need a piece of paper, like you really want to have a piece of paper to say, you know, the stuff that you claim to know, like, it's not that this is creativity. And all you have, yes, please, please have a piece of paper before you operate on me. That, that's absolutely. what I ask. Please have several. Uh, yes, absolutely. But in creativity, no one has to justify you except you. You know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I am the thing. I am a game designer. Why? How do I know that? Because I'm designing games. That's what I do. And it's also true that there are plenty of, of creative folks out in the world that have bona fide things, that have albums and games and movies and whatever, that aren't the thing anymore because they did yeah. it in the past, And they're but then they quit. They walked away and they took some time off, whatever. They're not the thing right now because they're not doing it. And right. so I think that's also something just to, to realize. And, and I, th- I think to, to sort of ex- to come at that same point from a different angle, um, I can tell you when someone's like, I have a published game and you look it up and it's a, a publisher who's butchered it and it's got seven yeah. ratings on BGG, that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't solve the problem. Right. If you're like, I need this to feel like I'm a designer, and then you get the worst version of that, it, it actually, it's not a step backwards. I'm not going to say it's, it's quite that far, but it's, it's, it doesn't help as much as you might imagine it does when you're on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, a lot of times people are looking at quality. <laughs> right. You know, you can say, I've published 100 games, and they're, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but what does that mean exactly? You know, but... Yeah, you are the thing. If you're doing it, if you're doing the job, yeah. you are the thing. And it, But you have to believe it yourself. Like, I can't tell you that. There's not enough games on a shelf in any game store that will actually make you believe I have arrived. You know, and, and so that's just that's just part of it. And anyway, I think yeah. it's something vital for new designers to hear. All right, so that I think is the end of that half of the yes. list. Are we ready yes. to move on? Yeah, so I've been designing for a bit over ten years now. I've been publishing for a bit over six years now. Um, I've, I've I've had some some modest success. So I was also thinking about like pe- people who are who are who are more experienced designers, people who have been doing this for a while. I, I was trying to think what what tips I would offer them. So the one that I've been really thinking about a lot lately is following obsessions because you know you can sit down and, and write out the perfect game and be like ah yes i want to make a worker placement set in macedonia about this specific thing and you can probably design that game if you're an experienced designer you can probably make that and maybe this is your process and maybe that'll turn into the biggest hit of all time but i have found more and more that the the things that i make that land are the things that i cannot get out of my head if I'm meant to be working on something and there is an idea that I think there's a babe quote, um, the narrator uh, says, you know, farmer Hoggett had discovered that the ideas that niggled and niggled and never, never left. Those were the, those are the ones that are truly worth working on or something like that. Uh, that has increasingly been the case. Like that time you killed me is, is my biggest hit by far. And that was a game that I could not stop playing. I could not stop thinking about. Um, I've, I've had a few games now where when they come into my head, I just want to play them. I just want to get them to the table and play them. And I don't mean I want to design them because that's a whole different itch to scratch. I mean, I want to play them as a player. I want to be in the experience of that game. Those are the ones that I think I'm, I'm increasingly following and, and, and finding fruitful. I totally agree. It, there's so many games that I've worked on for about 15 minutes. And then I realized I don't care enough about this thing to spend a hundred more hours bringing it to life. It doesn't excite me and it might be a really good product. Well, that's the thing. And that's the thing about being, being at, at your level and my level is, you know, you could do it well, <laughs> you know, at the end of this, you would have a perfectly serviceable game and that's the trap. That's what you got to avoid. You got to be like, okay, I could make this good. I could also, you know, pull up a random generator and probably make that into a good game, but that's not going to be a great game. Yeah. And if it's not fun to me right now, 15, 20 minutes in, it's probably not going to be fun to me a hundred hours in. And when I'm doing one more play test and I'm doing one more edit of the rule book and it's like, 
because uh, it can become soul sucking. I remember Ignacy uh, Shevichek was talking about his Mars game. I can't remember the name, but anyway, it was like on, a follow up on Mars. On Mars. Oh, that was easy. Um, it was a follow up to Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> and he just yeah. he, he sounded so defeated. He sounded so just like done with it, and it had issues. And, and play tester every time he play tested it, even though it was like kind of done, they kept finding problems on stuff. And he he just just to hear him talk about it was kind of sad. It's like I feel like he was doing it eventually just because he had so much invested right. And had yeah. art and graphic design. Cost. Yeah. And, and that's a tough place to be. And sometimes you get there as a publisher, you know, as yeah. a designer, it's like, well, I put so much in, I've just got to see it through just because I've got to realize at least some of this money, even if it's a loss, it won't be a complete loss. And I get that. But man, like you like to your point, if it's not something that gets you up in the morning, that gets you going, like, again, I've been working on Robomon over two years and I still enjoy it. I still yeah. love this world, these these mechanisms, the way things are going. Now, part of that also, and let me get your thoughts on this, is I've brought several other people onto the team, right? I'm not a great puzzle designer, uh, like, you know, riddles and stuff like that. And so I found some really good puzzle designers. And so every time they create a new puzzle, I get to experience it for the first time. And so I'm <laughs> playing it. I'm enjoying it, right? And I hired some people to help me with the writing, writing the random events and, and some parts of the narrative, stuff like that. And so you know, I've got like maybe a vision, a direction, but then they do it and I get all giddy and excited when they send something in because yeah. like, oh, this is so much fun because I get to experience it for the first time, which as a designer is usually not the case. Like usually it starts in your head and then you, you know, you are the one to, ex- to experience it, but it's it's a different process. And so that's been a lot of fun. Have you found that to be the case with your own designs, like working with other people to really kind of help keep you going? Yeah. So Cartouche is is my biggest co-design. Oh, my new my new game Pro- Providence as well. But Cartouche is my, my biggest about to be published co-design. And that one I worked on with Jeff Fraser, who's incredible. And uh, he, we, would, we would go back and forth with drafts. So I was uh, in LA, who's in Toronto. I would make a draft, send it to him. He would play it, ch- make changes, send it back. I'd play it. And every time it came back to me, I was excited to see what he'd done. I was excited to play it again. Um, that and Sunshine City are both two games that I designed the solo mode for. And I'll tell you, I knew I was under something in Solo City when I finished a play test and then without even noticing, it was just like testing a thing and ended up playing a full game by myself, like an entire game just because I was like, well, I want to see what happens next turn. Okay, but I want to see what happens next turn. I want to see what happens next turn. Same with Cartouche. With Cartouche, I was working on the solo mode and I played it twice more almost without noticing because <laughs> I was just like, okay, what what happens if this? Oh, 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 okay. And then... I could have stopped halfway through because I'd already tested the thing I needed to test, mm. but I wanted to finish the game. I wanted to see how many points I scored. I wanted to see what next card came out, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, uh, I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah. Once, once a game gets its hooks into your brain and you almost can't stop playing it, <laughs> I have a brand new idea. I've played it twice. It has not worked either time. Uh, because it's just too long. It's meant to be a 20 minute game. Both, both play tests took two and a half hours and that sounds insane, but no one wanted to stop the play test. Everyone wanted mm. to keep on playing for the entire two and a half hours. And so I've got an idea for a fix and I'm dying to get this game to the table because I want to partially because I want to test the fix, but also I just want to play this game. I just really enjoy the game. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And it also, it reminds me, so I was looking at, um, so Asmodee, is hiring a game designer. I think it's like they published it recently. They're looking for a game designer. You're like, oh shoot, I can get paid a salary and have benefits and insurance and stuff like that to make games. That sounds like so much fun. And But then I thought, but I don't like Arkham Horror. 
and I'm going to have to right. design Arkham Horror stuff. You know, I mean, like <laughs> there's so many things that I just don't care about for whatever reason. And whether it's thematic or, or mechanism or weight or something like that, it's like, ah, meh, that doesn't get me excited. Yeah. I'm like, also a screenwriter. And so I often think about this in terms of screenwriting. Like hmm. you break into the screenwriting industry with your passion project. Yeah. And then once you've broken in, you're on assignment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, okay, cool. Write, write this new Marvel thing. And Marvel's a bad example because most people are excited to work on Marvel. But more likely it's, hey, we got this premise of a thing. Rewrite this to be good. And you've got the skill to do it you can do that you can rewrite it to be good but because it's not your burning desire it's not going to be an amazing film and they never are the amazing films are the ones where you wanted to make this thing and you not forced it through the system but your your passion for it got it all the way to getting made and then it was released so that changes people's lives whereas like oh uh we you know we have sandra bullock for, for two months can you write a sandra bullock film uh, we only have access to these places, so it's going to be set here. Also, I think we've got uh, Bill Murray for two days, so give him a cameo. Like Writing to committee like that, you're never going to end up with something that sets your heart on fire or sets the audience's heart on fire. I had a really good conversation recently with somebody about this very thing, and it's the difference between art and content. And so yeah. much stuff now is not art. It's become content. You know, Star Wars is a, a tragic, wonderful example where it's no longer about creating a movie about something about and, and putting these characters that the writers and the directors, yeah. everyone loves and the story and this world building. It's about making a new Star Wars film. Exactly. We need another batch of content, whether it's some crappy Disney plus show that no one wants, no one asks for, no one's care. No one cares about, but they, they need more content. Yeah. They got to put more stuff out to justify people having that Disney plus uh, membership subscription. And it's like, ah, is this what, what we're doing? And because then you end up with characters that are just mad. The writing's mad. The everything's mad. It's got great visual effects, got good music. You know, it's got cool factors like you're talking about, like it does the job, but no one is ending the movie or ending the show and going, wow, that changed me. Wow. That's, yeah. That makes me think, wow, that that affected me in some meaningful way. Yeah. It's really just stuff you can have on in the background. It, it doesn't come from a place of authenticity, so it doesn't hit yeah. people authentically. Exactly. And you can almost just have it on in the background while you're looking at your phone or doing something yeah. else. Like it's almost kind of just noise because it's just content. You know, it's not yeah. it's not art. And I, I hate that. I hate that that's happening to so many things. And honestly, it's probably because nerd culture is becoming more and more lucrative. And people realize, oh, we can make a lot of money off of this stuff that used to people made because it was something they loved. It was art to them because it wasn't going to make them a zillion dollars. But now nerd culture, it it's lucrative. And so we're getting more and more just like churned out stuff just for money's sake and not art's sake. Uh, I I should mention too, if if you're a newer designer, I think making content is a really good way to build those skills. Mm, Um, I think if as a newer designer, if you're like, I'm only going to work on stuff that is deeply important to me, then you're going to run into that trap of only working on one thing. Uh, so if, if you're a new designer, make some content, that's okay. Make an 18 card game to make an 18 card game because you'll learn the skills. But once you're at the point where you can reliably finish a game, that's when you need to, I think, really raise your standards. Oh, definitely. Uh, early on, there's certain, there's something to be said for just shooting a million free throws, right? And, and dribbling a million, t- like just doing stuff because it yeah. makes you better at the thing. Yeah, and dr- drills and scales. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that, I think that's that's part of that, um, because you want to eventually get to a place where you have the skill set so that then you can create whatever you want. Like you have the ability. Yeah, you, you can bring your authentic vision to life effectively. Exactly. And also you're figuring it out like you don't even know what you like yet. Like you haven't played enough. You haven't designed enough, created enough to go, oh, this is who I am. This is my style. This is you know the stuff that I create. You don't know yet. And so just turning out content can be really helpful. And that early on. Yeah. Even though it is, you know, maybe not particularly inspired or whatever, but yeah, you're, I mean, it's you're, probably not going to get made, but 
most of your early designs are probably not going to make made. And in fact, right. shouldn't probably get made. Hard that, <laughs> that might be to hear, but like, it's just a fact. Most of my early designs, I'm very glad never got made. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's almost a, a bad thing because everybody's first few first few hundred things are probably pretty bad. And so if you get yeah. like notoriety early on, one, it might make you think you're better than you are. When someone gets too much success too early, right? And they get that kind of puffed up ego and it's like, uh, just give it a second. You're probably going to fall. Yeah, if, if, if your first idea is a hit, you're going to be like, oh, every idea is a hit. And I promise <laughs> you, no matter who you are, not every idea is a hit. Exactly. And you don't get the benefit of having to grind it out and having to grow and get better and, and to do all that in the dark, like in the shadow where nobody sees it. Uh, so many people have, have, you know, almost had too much too early, whether they were too young or whatever. And then now your big mistakes happen in front of everybody. There's a great quote. Uh, every writer has a, th- uh, every, every artist has a thousand bad drawings in them. Mm. You just got to push them out of the way so you can get to the good stuff. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. My next one is a Disney song. Can you guess what my next tip is? Um, trying to think. It's under the sea. <laughs> That's right. So my next tip is for advanced designers or experienced designers, uh, not advanced, for experienced designers uh, under the sea. Uh, go under underwater and design there. That's the that's the only way it's done nowadays. Um, exactly. That's why confirmed. I thought, that's that's why we all do it. That's why you have the Peter C. Hayward in your name. <laughs> yeah, work under the sea. Uh, right. Let it go. So go. I noticed this pattern in my um, in my in my project. So I, I'm a screenwriter as well. As I mentioned, I edited a sitcom called Night Crew that Gabe came and helped out on. Yeah. Uh, at the start of last year, and I realized that the the draft that we recorded was draft 35. And then I looked at the last few games I'd published and I started versioning my games. And the last few games that I'd published were all at about draft 35, maybe, you know, maybe 34, maybe 38. But for some reason, 35 seemed to be that sweet spot. And so now when I'm starting a project, it sort of ties into like follow an obsession. I'm like, okay, do I like this enough to do 35 ideas of it? Uh, 35 different iterations because, and you know, I, I can't do 35 in a night. That's weeks and months and years of working on a game. But more importantly, if I know going in that there's going to be 35 drafts of this, which again has reliably been the case, I think Sunshine City is on about draft 28, and that's very uh, that's that's a very small number for me to be putting something out. If I know that I'm going to be doing 35 drafts of something, then I have room to play, and so more and more I'm starting to it, it's it's kill your darlings is another way of saying it, or, or um, there's different ways that this 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 idea is expressed. Kill your babies. Uh, if I know that I'm going to do 35 versions, then there's not really any harm in taking out the stuff I love just for a draft or two to see how it plays. So I have a game uh, that, I, that I've been working on and I had some really funny writing in there. <laughs> and I'm a writer and That Time You Killed Me has been a big hit because of the writing. And so I was like, well, I really want this funny writing on the card so that people can look at it and laugh and see how clever and funny I am. And then at the playtest yesterday, my playtesters were like, why are there all these small lines? You don't need them. And I was like, but that's that's my jokes. That's my funny part. That's the part that I put time into writing all these jokes. And so I told myself, hey, I'm only on draft 12 of this game. I've got 23 more drafts. I can take the jokes out just for a few drafts. <laughs> you know, they can come back. There's plenty of room for them to come back. And then, you know, if, if it's... And, and there's no harm in that. And as, of course, as soon as I took the jokes out, I made all the text bigger and I didn't have all this small text, it just got better immediately. It's <laughs> just a hundred times better. And so there's no way those jokes are going back in. But I had to really let it go. I had to very consciously be like, okay, I know I love this thing. I know for me, it's like what makes this game really good. I'm just going to try letting it go. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you'll take something out and everyone will be like, oh, this game's missing something. And you're like, oh no, I guess I have to put my baby back in. <laughs> but really letting it go, like not 
holding on to these ideas. It's also been the case with screenwriting. I had this amazing twist in a screenplay and everyone was like, this twist is great. And then one day I took it out and showed it to some new people and they were like, this is really good. And I was like, it doesn't doesn't feel like it's missing a brilliant twist. They're like, no, <laughs> not at all. That would just get in the way of this storyline. I was like, oh, I guess I can. And one, once you let something like that go, you suddenly have all this space to move. And without that twist, I can make this, the start simpler. And so, yeah, with I, I, I work to the 35 draft principle. This is my process I've learned over years. And so I force myself to let stuff go just to see if it makes it better. And I'm shocked at how often it does. Yeah, I love that, man. It also reminds me, it's so much... I don't know if easier is the right word, maybe better is the right word. But when you when you know how long something is going to take, as opposed to indefinite, your mind right. changes, right? <laughs> like I was stuck in Honduras for about seven and a half years. I thought I was going to be there for three, at most five. And then because yeah. of COVID and some other factors and things going on, I was there seven and a half. And But I didn't know if it was going to be 10, 20. Am I going to die here? I don't know. And so because I didn't know, I made decisions differently than if I had known you're going to be there seven and a half years. Absolutely. Right? When I went to buy a car, I thought, I don't think I'm going to be here very long. Let me go get a cheap car. It's not going to last very long, but who cares? I don't need it to last very long because I'm not going to be here. Hopefully. And then I had a crappy car for years, <laughs> years. You know, I was like, <laughs> I would not have bought this car had I known, yeah. you know? And so when you, like you're saying, when you, when you know, Hey, this is going to take me roughly 35 drafts. Okay. You can start making decisions differently because you know, okay, uh, roughly about you know how long it's going to take, and your your decision making changes, your mindset changes, and and I love that. Uh, of just really, now, it takes a while to get to that place where you've ha- you've got enough data to say it takes me about thirty five tries. But yeah. um, yeah, I think it's really good to track. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, and t- until I came up with that rule, I was always like, oh, it'll be three drafts at most. <laughs> like this game's already so great on on draft four. How many more could it possibly take? And so <laughs> I can't lose this idea because it's already good. And so if I lose the best idea, I'll be no. If 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 you really consciously make an effort to let your like let your babies go let your darlings go kill your darlings i have been stunned at what a difference it makes yeah. right, next one is uh i don't i don't know if, i don't know if other people do this but the more i work on games the more i learn about graphic design mm. and even though i'm a publisher i've never done the, my own graphic design for a game i do not have that skill set but i have learned how to use indesign i have learned how to use photoshop i've learned how to make icons that make sense to people because the closer you can get your prototype to the final game, I'm, I'm not talking like don't pay for art, don't spend hours on art, but in terms of like how people are going to be interacting with the game, the closer you can get to that, I think the better positioned you are. And this is whether you're pitching or whether you're publishing yourself because um, I have a game called Bugs and Rugs, which I, I really like. It's it's a cute little design that uh, Kids Table Board Games published. So that's another game of mine that I didn't publish myself. And they changed the text to graphics Uh, sort of at at the last minute. And I always had text on the cards and not graphics. And I wished that I had done graphics right from the start because I think graphics were the right choice for that. But if if they had been graphics, I would have made all these differences, whereas changing them last minute caused a few things, not to not work. I think it's a really cute, fun game, but it wasn't as seamless as an experience as as, as a game that way it should be because that was a relatively late change. And and similarly, like playtesting on Tabletop Simulator for a physical game you're going to get the physical game and be like, oh, this actually doesn't work as smoothly as it does. Like um, I, I playtested Flamecraft and I was one of the first people to playtest Flamecraft in person. It had always been playtested online. 
and there was too much text on cards across the table because on Tabletop Simulator, you can hold down Alt and it'll just zoom in for you. In person, you can't do that. Same same with the game I was saying with the small text. I've been playing it online a lot. And so when there were 10 people gathered around a table playing the game, they were like, yeah, we can't read that. And I was like, but my hilarious jokes, you can't read my hilarious jokes. <laughs> and so the closer you can play test to the final thing in terms of graphic design, in terms of grabbing art off Google image search, not to publish it. I'm not talking about like selling this art and stealing it, but in terms of trying to create what the final experience will look like, the better I, the more cohesive I found my games becoming. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it comes down to you're, you're always testing more than just the game play itself. You're testing the yes. entire experience, right? Exactly. How usable is the game, the, the interface, the cards, the graphics, all that stuff vitally important and to your point the earlier you can get that figured out the more time you have to actually make sure it all works together and then the icons make sense like it just it just makes sense to kind of yeah. begin with that end in mind and so i, I will do and, and so i'm not contradicting myself i will do three or four play tests with the least graphics possible with like clumsily drawn text etc so i'm not i'm not building all this in design and then bringing it to the table for the first time i'm making sure that that call loop is there once that call loop is there, I'm thinking, okay, cool. I know that this is a game I'm going to keep working on. I know this is a game I would work on for 35 drafts. What would it look like in the end? Or what's an idea for how it would look like? Because that's going to shift every time you bring it to the table. Yeah, that's great. All right, what's the next one? Okay, so this is for designers who aren't necessarily publishing the games themselves. Um, I design to a publisher. And it's not always the publisher who signs it, but I think, okay, who would my ideal publisher be for this game? And that's what I designed to. And it just gives me a really clear product vision, which is helpful for that previous step I was saying of like testing the whole cohesive product. But as well as that, um, and even and, and, you know, that that publisher often doesn't end up being the one to design it. And that's okay. I'm not saying design to that publisher and if they reject it, throw the game out. But if it's a success, if it's a successful publisher, that's probably for a reason. Like they have an idea of what the market's after. So if you can design a game that makes sense in their catalog. It makes sense as a published game, and it'll help you so much along the line. Like making every time you hit a decision, you're like, "Well, okay, what would the final product look like if it was a, you know, fantasy flight games? If it was a stone my game? If it was this? If you design with that in mind, then you'll get a very cohesive, market friendly product. Is this something you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not as much anymore. Well, yeah, I guess I do because I mean, I design with my own audience in mind, right? My own community that I built up around my games. You are the publisher. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, and you got to keep that in mind because I've seen several amazing designers, amazing publishers have a lot of success doing a kind of a thing inside a certain box. And then they're like, oh, I got this really interesting idea for something way <laughs> over there in a totally different box. And then they go to Kickstarter and normally they make a lot of money. And then people are like, what is this? That's yeah. not what I want. And they don't do very well. My favorite example of this is the Stone Blade, uh, the tiny little like critter card game that they had. Do you remember this? Uh -huh. Yeah. It was, like, it was like catching turnips or something. And like they're uh -huh. known for Ascension and Soul Forge and these big epic fantasy things. And they like, yeah. And then they released this cute little carrot game or whatever it was. And everyone was just like, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, I saw one company, they, they had only done dexterity games and they have amazing dexterity games. Some of my favorite dexterity games of all time. And then they came out with a game that's not dexterity at all, but it was also in the same world. I had a very similar theme, uh -huh. but not a dexterity game. And people were like, but where... But when do we use dexterity yeah. <laughs> in the game? Because that's what we do. You know. So I throw the box across the room? It doesn't say, <laughs> so I assume that's what I do. Right. These cubes, do I yeah. flick the cubes? <laughs> I only play, I place the cube. Do I flick them after placing? No, okay. Do I place them from a distance? Is that, exactly. is that the challenge? And so it was confusing to people. Yeah. We'll say, to your point, one, it gives you such a great filter, a decision filter, 
If every time you, you go to like change something or add something or take something away, you get to filter it through. Is this going to help me publish the game with that publisher or not? Yeah. And for what reason? And again, like you're, to your point, you don't have to have it published by them. You know, it, if Stonemaier, if you're designing a game that would fit with Stonemaier games and then Jamie's like, ah, that's not my thing. You don't just like burn it in the trash. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> because there's a lot of other companies that want to des- you know publish those kinds of games too. But at least designing with that type of end in mind gives you clarity. Because I feel like, Unless before we go to that last one, give me your thoughts on this. What has been your struggle with clarity, especially as a designer that typically publishes your own games, right? Because sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, do I do A or B? Do I make this game more combat heavy or less combat heavy? Like, because some, sometimes like the the um, the decision is not easily seen, right? It's not clear which way to go. Right. It, yeah. It, it, it's not, do I make this, you know, do it? Because <laughs> we make mostly kids games. So it's uh-huh. not like, okay, do I add some racism into my game or not? <laughs> cool. What do I do here? It's, it's never it's never that simple. Um, so we very early on, uh, it's not online anymore. I built a submissions page for Jellybean Games. And that had extremely specific things. Mm. And this is why That Time You Killed Me is not a game that I published, because I did not meet my own criteria for that game. It couldn't. I, I couldn't turn this two-player abstract into a game that played, you know, four to six. Yeah. <laughs> it was impossible. Um, so we had this uh, really detailed list of conditions. And so when I'm designing, I'll often go back to those conditions and be like, oh, does it match this? Does it, does it hit this? Um, if it's tricky, if it's on the fence, I think to myself, okay, uh, if it's a jelly bean game, especially our our kind of guiding ethos is games that adults and kids could play together and both sides have a good time. Mm. That's extremely specific. <laughs> it's really hard to hit that point, and so that more than anything has been the the guiding light for me. But if I'm making a coffee bean game, which is our sort of heavier brand and more puzzly sort of you know gamer games, uh, then yeah, I, I run into these things all the time. And so I tend to ask myself. Um, Dominic Crappacuti's had a really good one. He said does this benefit the first play or the 10th play? Mm. And so I, with, with Jelly Bean, I lean towards the first play. With Coffee Bean, I'm more likely to lean towards the 10th play, but I'll, I'll always note it because if I can make a first play like setup solve that problem, I will. But yeah, I, I lean more towards the 10th play for a heavy game and the first play for light. Yeah, game. I like that. And just the idea of sitting down and writing it out here are my guidelines. And even if you're going to uh, try to get a game published with somebody else, going to their website, looking at their submission rules or, or looking at the yeah. games. Uh, Stone My Games is a great example. They have an yeah. amazing submission guidelines. Incredible. Exactly. Really recommend. And what a wonderful decision filter. And if a company doesn't have that, create it yourself. Look at look at the shelf of, game, of their games and you go, okay, their games are always at least three or more players. They don't do one or two player games. Okay, well, that gives me some decisions uh, that makes some decisions for me right there. Uh, they tend to lean towards fantasy theme. They, they don't do sci-fi, you know, science fiction or anything else. Okay. That, but again, you're, you're creating a box to live in and it just gets a lot easier to design a game that has some of those decisions made for you. <laughs> so you're not just always yeah. wondering, I don't know, should I do this? <laughs> yeah. All right. What's the, what's the last one? Okay. Last tip for experienced designers. And this is something I'm, I'm leaning into more recently is if you can find a way to do so, it's, really uh, beneficial to specialize. Hmm. Uh, and this is for two reasons. One is for branding. So uh, I am increasingly known as, and this is, a, this is a weird thing, but I'm increasingly known as the guy who doesn't do victory points. <laughs> um, so far, the only game I've designed with victory points is Cartouche, and that was a, a co-design with, with Jeff who loves victory points. So that one makes sense for that reasons. Nothing else I've made um, really has like traditional, you know, 10 rounds, add up victory points. I don't do it. And so one, people are starting to know that for me. 
starting to know me for that. Uh, and so if if someone's tastes align with yours, then they're more likely to check out your games. And it's a little bit like the publisher thing we were talking about. If if you know if you've just played five dexterity games from publisher and you pick up pick up a six and it's not dexterity, you're going to be like, ah, oh, what's this about? But conversely, if you love dexterity games, then you know that you can keep going back to that. Like Stonemaier has a huge audience for a reason. He delivers an incredible. Uh, Jamie Stegmaier delivers an incredibly specific experience consistently. So his audience know that if they go back to him, he will they will get that experience. And so he has some of these things like he, with Wingspan as exception, he doesn't do rounds. He doesn't do like it's X rounds and then the game ends. Um, or he leans away from it, that kind of thing. He, he likes a nice natural flow. There's all kinds of things like that. If you can specialize, A, it'll help with your branding. And B, I'm, again, increasingly learning. You get, you, you build this expertise. I have gotten really good <laughs> at working out the tricks that make victory pointless games work. To the point where, like, that's how my brain thinks now. Like, it's it's almost like a weird space that I've my brain is now molded into that space, and I would find it a real challenge. Sunshine City started as a victory point game, and then about again three or four draft, five or six drafts in, I changed it from that to no victory points, and the game just got easier to design because that's now the space that I live in, the space that I'm very very comfortable with. So specializing, like, after you've got again five ten designs under your belt, being like, what do these have in common? Because obviously you're drawn to that. And the more you can lean into that, the more you will find your people. It's sort of like that authentic voice thing we were talking about. The more you will work out what you love doing, what you can bring to the table that other people can't, and you can just sharpen that to a pinpoint where you're like, ah, you know, uh, Leader Games perfectly delivers asymmetrical. Like each game is better and better at doing that because that's what they specialize in. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it kind of makes me think, all right, who makes more money as a doctor the person that's the general practitioner <laughs> or the person that specializes in heart, you know, or brains yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. Like, you know, if, if you need a checkup or something like that, yeah, you go to the general pra- practitioner and there's a whole bunch of them or whatever. But if you have a heart problem or a brain problem. Yeah. You, you will get referred to a specialist. Yeah. And let me pay them whatever it costs to fix this <laughs> issue. You know what I mean? And so that's a really interesting thing. And it, it just makes sense. One from a marketing standpoint, it makes marketing easier when you're, community your customer base goes okay this person makes well not not only customers but publishers if publishers are like oh i really like this style of thing you do Mm -hmm. if they know they can come back to you for more of that style of thing even if this game doesn't work if they like that style then then you'll always be providing it and then i guess it also leads into the holy grail which is a publisher contacting you for a design right right and (laughs) you don't have to spend all that time on you know pitching and and speed dating events all that kind of stuff they're like hey peter i want you to design a game that you're really good at designing like oh Okay, where's the, you know, Tim Ward That, that literally right? happened to me for the first time this year. It was very exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, okay, and was it based on your, your games at Jellybean? They're like, okay, we want a game like that, or what was it? Uh, that, that time you killed me. They saw that time you killed oh. me, and they were like, hey, could you bring that to us next time instead of Pandasaurus? <laughs> and you were like, yes, if just add an extra zero onto the, the paycheck. And Yeah, well, it was, it was one of my favorite publishers. I mean, obviously, I love Pandasaurus, but uh, yeah. this, this, was, this is a publisher who I follow. And uh, if, I, if I'd even considered them, I, prob- I probably would have reached out to them as well or first or something like that. So it was, it was very flattering to like have that meeting, and they're like, we want this. And then they went through, and this was amazing, they went through their brand guidelines they went through, we do this, we do this, we don't do this, we don't do this. And because they were interested in me, they were very happy for me to pick their brain for half an hour and be like, okay, would you have published Splendor? And he's like, oh, that's a great question. It fits all of our guidelines, but I wouldn't have, and here's why. And I was like, yeah, I didn't think you would have, and that makes sense. So um, sorry, this just turned into Peter Bragging Hour. But yeah, <laughs> if you specialize, you will you will attract attention from publishers that you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And it's also, it's nice to just be known for something, right? 
Um, it's kind of like it, it's better to be loved and hated <laughs> for something than to just have people go meh. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what's, what's the Jack Sparrow quote? Um, you're the worst captain I've ever heard of. Yes, but you but have heard, heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. And I, I guess that's also the risk, though, because the more you specialize, the more people are not going to like that thing you specialize in. Oh, absolutely. There, there are people, um, in, including my friend Jeff, who I've co-designed games with. He does not like the race victory condition. He just doesn't enjoy it. He wants victory points. He wants a set 10 rounds to maximize victory points completely reasonable a lot mm. of people want that that's a very popular style of game and so every time i pull out a game his first note is like hey what if what if you had victory points in this and i'm like <laughs> i'm i'm i understand where you're coming from and i understand that's what you want i'm not going to do that and he's like well i'm not i'm going to enjoy it less and that obviously sucks because he's one of my close friends but yeah. that's the cost of specializing yeah so more people are going to hate it but also more people are going to love it it, 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 it's uh, it's the difference between more people hating it, but it being the favorite game of more people. I would much rather have have it be you know ten people's favorite game and forty people hate it than fifty people like oh yeah that was a game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Versus like people just going oh I've heard of that and then they played it one time and never thought of it again ever. Right. You know. Yeah. If if you if you want to penetrate someone's heart, you've got to be a sharp point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. That makes a lot of sense, man. No, it's good. Well, cool, man. Was that, was that that was the last one, right? That that was my last tip. That awesome. was uh, that. That and go listen to uh, every episode of Board Game Design Lab, and then every episode of Fun Problems. That's my. There you tip. go. That'll <laughs> that'll take you a day or two, and so yeah, yeah. yeah. By the end of that journey, you should be hopefully better. I know I have gotten better listening to this, these episodes like two or three times myself through actually doing them and then editing them and then yeah. listening them again. Uh, yeah, it's been super helpful, and I, I love your podcast, man. I really enjoy listening oh, to you. it. Um, I haven't heard them all yet, but I've heard several, and it's it's just good. And one, I just like you as a designer, as a person. So it's always <sighs> fun. AJ's lovely as well, my co-host. He's a sweetheart. Yeah, yeah definitely. He was on the uh, on my show a while back too. Oh, of um, course he was, yeah. So closing thoughts, and then we'll get into, I know you got a Kickstarter right now, but closing thoughts, what would be like kind of your last encouragement for game designers in general, new, experienced, whatever, just kind of like a one final thing to leave them with? Uh, you, you touched on this earlier, the Ira Glass bit, mm-hmm. um, the, the quote from Ira Glass, which is that when, when you start, your taste exceeds your talent. And the more you work on it, the closer your talent gets to your taste. So yeah. everything you start making is going to be bad. It's true of me. It's true of Gabe. It's true of every game designer ever. But if you enjoy the process of making it, stick with it. I, I think of it as affinity. Affinity is not talent. Affinity is enjoying doing it. If you have an affinity for game design, keep going. You will get better. And then oh, I was about to start just going through my tips again. But yeah, uh, every, everything I said is, is my summary. Uh, <laughs> rewind to the start of the episode. That's my summary. Everything I said up until this point. Yeah, ma- make a bunch of games, finish some of them, play test a lot. The more you can play test, the better. There's no such thing as too much play. Play test other people's games. You know, do, do, do all the things. Uh, and I promise you will get better. And if you enjoy it, then, you know, even in the impossible scenario, you don't get better. You've, you've found something that you love doing that you can do for the rest of your life. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, you got a Kickstarter about to uh, about to launch. Tell me about that one. Yes, yeah, so it's called Sunshine City. It's a print and play roll and write. And if you're listening to this, you can go online and play the game right now for free. We have a free version out. It's super fun. It's really engine building, really crunchy, uh, and it's it's free. I'm, I'm calling it the first ever roll and write and move because it's a roll and write where you're moving your little meeples around your city, Sunshine City, and building up solar power by engine building. Ah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think it's really cool. So it's coming to Kickstarter June 14th, and you'll be able to get three more maps and the full color version and all kinds of cool stuff only for a couple of bucks. It's going to be cheap as chips. Awesome. Is that a phrase over here? 
Cheap? No, but I like it. No, it's a, it's, it's a Britishism. <laughs> cheapest chips. It's going to be cheapest chips and you're going to love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Peter, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me again here on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter campaign and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?